Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, May 26, 2019. The share ID numbers for Friday, May 24th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,951. That's 12951. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,953. That's 12953. This morning, A Vision for You presents The Lying Witch and Two Wardrobes, How Recovery Rewrote My Story. The 12 steps as outlined in the big book represent a process of spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. An inward rearrangement occurs that actually transforms us and, indeed, rewrites our story. We have a profound alteration in our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and towards the world around us as a result of our new spiritual condition, our new view of the world. The result of the 12-step process and a relationship with a power greater than ourselves is change, change, a psychic change, a rebirth, and we are changed in the way we think, the way we feel, and especially in the way we behave. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of our lives, are cast to one side, and a completely new set of conceptions, ideas, and attitudes begin to dominate us. Yes, our stories are rewritten, and we are given a new life, a new freedom, a new happiness, and a new purpose. Joining us today to share her remarkable story of transformation as a result of these 12 steps is Lori W., a recovered compulsive overeater from Atlanta, Georgia. Lori is grateful for her new way of life and eager to tell her remarkable story of recovery with all of us today. So welcome to the line, Lori W. Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you for the invitation to share my experience, strength, and hope. And thank you for all of my fellows that are on the line this morning, those that will listen to the recording later, and those that support my recovery every day on A Vision for You. I'm very grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be recovered. Um, Many of you have heard me host the second hour of A Vision for You, but um, maybe we haven't interacted on the phone or or in person so much. But I will tell you off the bat that I have learned to be very transparent and honest. So I'm going to be that person with you this morning um, and just share my experience, my strength, and my hope. And um, I just feel like the best way for me to help people is to just be transparent and and totally honest about my experience and who I was and the process that uh, I underwent to become the person that I am today. Um, Just a little bit about me. As Leah said, I do live in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, this is my home. This is my, my base for recovery. I am on the um, phone call list, uh, Lori W., and I always am happy to hear from my fellows. Uh, I began my journey in OA in 2001. I learned of OA from a relative that was in program 
uh, as I was growing up, and they they were sharing their uh, experience with the program and made a gentle suggestion one day that I may benefit from it. And uh, I embraced it. I found it in the city that I was living at the time, and I started going to -to face-to-face meetings. And um, I made a lot of great great friends, but unfortunately, I did not experience a lot of recovery. Uh, We would go to meetings. We would be there. We would share. We would, you know, maybe discuss the reading from the the devotional for that day. We might read a story from the back of the big book. We may read from the 12 and 12 and discuss that. Um, But as I recall, very seldom did we read any passages out of the big book. And it became kind of like a social club, especially the Tuesday morning meeting. We would go, we'd have a meeting for an hour and a half, then we'd all pack up and we'd go to lunch together and eat, you know, non-abstinent meals and laugh and talk. And it was a great, you know, circle of girlfriends that I had um, for this Tuesday morning uh, experience. But there was no recovery there. And unfortunately, I went in and out of the rooms of OA from 2001 up until I joined a vision when it was um, transforming into a vision for you from the previous um, meeting. Uh, That's when I began to come along with it. And um, so from 2001 until about four or five years ago, I stayed in and out of the rooms of recovery, and I I stayed just as sick as ever, Um, physically sick, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And um, that's one of my burdens today is that this message be carried into the rooms of OA um, as as fully as we have it on A Vision for You. I would love for everyone to have that because this is where my recovery truly began and took root is on the A Vision for You um, phone meeting. So I'm very grateful for the meetings. I'm grateful to be here and I'm, I'm grateful to share what A Vision for You has done for me and how it has transformed my life. Um, I was born into a family of uh, mom and dad, married parents. They've been married over 52 years. And um, I have one older sibling. She is three years uh, my senior. And we had a very traditional, normal life when I was born. My father was an executive for um, um, Sears, which was a a major retailer back in uh, the 70s. And he had an office in the Sears Tower, and we lived in Chicago, and life was great and grand and perfect in every way. And my sister and I went to, um, you know, private little daycares, Montessori schools, and we we were, you know, just uh, an upward mobility, um, middle class, upward uh, middle class family. And um, when I was about mm, three or four years old, God spoke to my dad and decided that he needed to be a minister. And life as I knew it up until that time, you know, being two or three and life was happy and joyous and um, it changed tremendously. And he went back to school, he went to seminary and he became a, a pastor. And so from the time that I was like in maybe third or fourth grade, he he was in the ministry and it really was a pivotal point, as I look back now, uh, of change in my life. And I went from just being a happy, normal child to being under the scrutiny of many eyes. And I felt that scrutiny. And I felt and I heard the remarks, oh, you can't do that. You're the pastor's daughter. Or you shouldn't do that because you're the pastor's daughter. And I I really resented um, that my life had to change because um, God wanted my, my dad to do some work for him. And so I began to get a really tough exterior, and this coincided with some um, 
sexual, sexual abuse that I experienced as a child from um, male relatives. And so I began to build a really tough shell around myself and my mind and my body and my spirit. And I can identify now, looking back, that this is a time that I really put some distance between me and God. I was angry with him because my life had to change so drastic, drastically. I was angry because my body was being mistreated by um, relatives that my, my parents trusted. I was angry because my life, you know, from being a normal um, living in the suburbs of Chicago family, then we began to move as my father went to different uh, pastoring in different places. And we moved every about four or five years. So he would go to a different church and then our denomination would move him to another church and another area. And so my whole life was spent moving, getting acclimated, you know, breaking out of the shell of being the new kid, the new girl, making my way into crowds and friendship circles and then becoming part of the in crowd and then being ripped away and having to move somewhere else and to begin the cycle again. So this added another layer um, of self-protection and anger uh, to my already uh, encrusted heart and mind, you know, as a child. And so um, a lot of the people that I've reconnected with now, thanks to social media, are just really getting to know me as a person, as an adult, and and they're starting to like me because, and I hear all the time that, my goodness, when we were little, I used to be afraid of you because you were so mean and you, you know, this and that. And I just, I evolved and I got older, but I never knew how to get rid of that hurt and that pain, the fear of of being rejected in a new environment, um, the memories of being abused, just feeling like I didn't have, I wasn't rooted and grounded in the world. I didn't have a permanent place. I have friends that were born and raised in the same city and lived there all their lives. And I was always so jealous of that because my life was so transient. And so um, all of these things just continued to build and build and build in me and in my life. And by the time I was a teenager, I was just horrible. I was just a, a terrible, a terrible teen. I was mean. And then, of course, the hormonal issues of, of the teenage years came into play. And I was just like a dragon. I, I couldn't even stand myself. And people would say things to me and, you know, the people at, the, at my father's churches, and I would just be so flippant with him. And, you know, they would always call different times of the day and night, one in the pastor. And I would just, I would just be so unkind to them. And I would say, you know, things to my father, and I would say, you know, Daddy, you can't save everybody in the world. Some of them are going to have to go to hell. This person seems like a great candidate. I, as a matter of fact, I'm going to tell them to go ahead and go. And he would just cringe because he would never know what was going to come out of my mouth. Um, I didn't know what was going to come out of my mouth. Um, but I just began to resent, the, you know, the people at the church, and they consumed so much of our time. And you know, we would be on vacation and on holiday and someone would get sick uh, back at home and they would call the, you know, my father at the hotel in the middle of the night. And I'd be like, well, daddy, what are you going to do? You can't save them. You know, if, if it's their time to go, you know, we're on vacation. We'll be home in time for the funeral. Just, just, you know, let's have a good time. And so, but he was, he was very much, I now know, a workaholic also. Um, and um, 
so it was always it seemed like the the church and the church people were always interfering in our lives, and we couldn't have a normal family, normal family time. And I just became resentful of this. So by the time I became a teenager, um, I had learned to medicate some of my feelings with food. And if I was bored, I would eat. If I was lonely, I would eat. If I was angry, I would eat. If I was happy and excited about something, I would want to eat. And I'm, I'm still very much like that today, and I have to rein it in and really watch myself. But um, food began to be something that uh, moved with us. We moved, and our addresses changed, and the city and locations changed. But the food that were in the grocery store in Michigan were the same foods that were in the grocery store in North Carolina, in California, in Alabama, in Georgia, in South Carolina, in Florida. So while my locations and my geography changed, Oreos were still universal. Um, uh, Breyer's ice cream was universal. Um, Doritos were universal. So those were the staples and the things that stabilized when I moved and when, when feelings got uncomfortable, the food was the stabilizing factor. I was still very frustrated and angry with God because I had to move, didn't want to move, didn't want to leave my friends, didn't want to leave my school. Um, and so the thing that I began to lean on and depend on was the food because it was the constant in my life. While everything else changed, the, the grocery aisles were still as kind and loving and welcoming to me as ever. So I began to eat, and when I was a child, I was very athletic and very active, and, you know, those were in the 70s and late 70s and early 80s and through the 80s when you could go outside and be outside all day without adult supervision and not be kidnapped, not be injured, not be um, traumatized in any way. And so I would play from sunup to sundown. I'd be on my bike. My friends and I, we'd trade out for roller skates. We would run around the neighborhood. We would go to the park and play. We would go swimming. We, I was just very active. So I was burning those um, calories as I was consuming them. We lived around the corner uh, for a few years from a Baskin-Robbins, and they had an arcade room in the back. And so while my friends and my cousins were spending their money playing arcade games, I was up front in the, in the uh, ice cream shop, and I was spending my money on the ice cream. And then at one time, we lived right around um, the corner from a grocery store, but it was across a major thoroughfare. And um, it was like playing Frogger. And I mean, I was like eight or nine years old, and I used to go around the corner to that store. And I loved the holiday time because I could get eggnog. And I would buy the quarts of eggnog with my money, and I would buy Kit Kats and Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. And I would go, and I had a great big closet in my room. And I had a table and chair in my closet, and uh, it was set up and, you know, for a place for me to just meditate and be, but I used it as a little kitchen for myself. And I would go, and I would dart across that highway, and the speed limit on that road was like 55 miles an hour, and I would be eight or nine years old, and I would cross that interstate by myself to go over there and spend my money and count out my nickels and dimes to buy eggnog. I was so happy when November came around because they started putting on the shelves in the store and it would run until January and I would drink it like water. I mean, that thick syrupy um, beverage and, and I would just drink that and I would eat Kit Kat and I would doze off and fall asleep. So I learned to medicate 
when I was about in fourth or fifth grade that I could knock myself unconscious by consuming these, um, these sugary snacks. And so um, that continued for the years that we lived there in Alabama. And um, by the time we moved to uh, Georgia, we moved to Atlanta first, then Savannah. And I was just so out of control, but my weight still was not an issue because I was still very active. And so um, at that time, I was a teenager, and I learned something new that was just as exciting and, and just as fulfilling as food, and that was sex. And I started getting attention from boys, and I was very popular, and um, I ended up getting pregnant. Now, this is the pastor's daughter. She's a teenager. She's in high school, and she's unmarried, and she's pregnant. So that gave a lot of um, fuel to fires of conversations around dinner tables of uh, my father's parishioners. And um, my father became very angry with me. Um, And I remember thinking, okay, God, you're supposed to be loving and merciful. You've already taken my dad. You've already turned him into a minister. It's turned our lives upside down. Now he hates me. And he said some very unkind things to me um, when I was pregnant. And um, I had gone away. They were sending me away that fall anyway to boarding school. And I went away, and we, we found out before I left that I was pregnant. And so they had made arrangements for me to be able to stay at the boarding school even though I was pregnant. But I, I did not want to stay. And so they came and picked me up one day from school. I packed up and I moved, you know, was moving back home. Uh, So I thought, and as we drove, I fell asleep in the car. And we left the city and the state that, um, that I was in in school, and they were driving me. And when I woke up, we were at this place. It looked like a house. And my parents said, you know, come on inside. We're going inside. And we went in. And um, they told me to sit in the foyer, and they went into this room, this office area with a woman, and they were in there for about an hour. And they came out, and my mom gave me a hug, and she cried, and I'm like, what's going on? And my father had gone out to the car, and he came in, and he had my luggage from school. And he said, you're going to be living here now. And I'm like, I don't even know where I am. I I fell asleep in a car. We got out of this place. I don't know the address. I don't know where I am. I don't know what city I'm in. And they hugged me and kissed me, and they left me there. And I just broke down and cried. And I cried and cried, and I didn't understand uh, what was going on or why this happened. And um, I stayed there for about three weeks, and I wasn't eating. I wasn't drinking. I got severely dehydrated. They had to take me to the hospital and um, force fluids uh, through an IV. And they finally called my parents and said, you have to come get her. We, we can't be responsible for her health or the health of the unborn baby. We can't get her to eat. We can't get her to drink. And we can't keep her, you know, just hooked up to an IV for the next, you know, several months until she delivers. So they came and picked me up, and they took me back to the city where we were living, where my father was pastoring, but they took me to a group home for, for unwed girls, and I lived there at the group home. Um, again, they didn't have a conversation with me to explain this to me. They just dropped me off. Um, but at least I was in a town where I was familiar. And um, ironically, um, my father and mother did not come and take me to church each week or encourage my church attendance. It was the church people that would come and pick me up, and they would take me, bring me to church, and then they would take me to their house to eat afterwards and, you know, to fellowship and have some time, and then they would take me back to my group home. And they really became my family during this time, and they 
They supported me and loved me and undergirded me and just nurtured my spirit. And that is how I got to see the love of Christ. And I always had a problem because my father stood in the pulpit and he preached grace, but then he did not exemplify it in our lives. And so it made me feel as if I was not forgiven by God or that I had committed an unpardonable sin and I could not be forgiven. And so all of these things, as I look back and as I did the work and program, I saw that these were barriers to my relationship with God. Even though I was in the church my whole life, um, I just didn't feel like I was redeemable or that God actually took a personal interest in me. And so um, my wall between God and myself continued to build, and it began to be a thicker wall, and it began to be higher. Um, I delivered um, my baby, a healthy little girl, and um, my parents just fell so in love with her instantly the moment that they saw her. And um, they wanted her to be with them. So they allowed her mother, who came along as, with the package, to come back home and to live there because they wanted the baby there. And they adored her, and they still do to this day. Um, and um, so I was able to go back home after I delivered. And uh, I finished school on time. I graduated with honors. And I was uh, finishing high school, and I was, like, trying to ponder what my next step was going to be. And I said, I, you know, I want to go to college. And my dad looked at me flat out. He said, well, you've ruined your life. You had a baby. You're, you're not going to be able to go to college. You, you know, you're just going to have to get a job and take care of your baby and go with that. And so um, something didn't sit right in my spirit with that, but that's what I began to do because I wanted to do what my father wanted me to do and what he expected me to do. And um, certainly if he didn't have any greater expectations for me, I should not have them for myself, I, I believe. So I worked for a couple of years and, you know, supported myself and this baby. And um, then when my daughter was three, um, I was actually working a job and, um, you know, my boss became very friendly with me and overly friendly. And he was older, much older than me. I was, you know, 19 years old and he was probably in his late 30s or early 40s at that time and married with a family. And um, my schedule began to change, and he, he began to schedule me later in the evenings and the late shift. Um, and so I didn't have a car, and he um, said, don't worry about it. I got your schedule, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be closing that night, so I'll get you home. And so he began to drive me home, and one night he did not drive me directly home, and he made a detour, and um, he ended up raping me. And uh, I was just very traumatized from that event. And um, I didn't know what to do, and I didn't want to go back to work, and I, I just felt awful. And then I started feeling physically awful. And um, a few weeks later, I discovered that I was pregnant. So I had this conundrum, what do I do? I, I don't want to go and tell him. I, don't, I can't tell my parents because they're going to think that I was just being wild again. I had this other child. They're not going to believe that someone violated my body, and I just didn't know what to do. So um, I packed up my things and I packed up my little girl and I basically just ran away. I, I left and no one knew where I was. And I went and um, I was going to place the baby for adoption. So I, I contacted an adoption agency and they had placed me in a home with a, an adoptive family, um, not the family that would adopt my baby, but another family um, they gave service to care for unwed mothers. Uh, for another family, you know, that was going to get the baby. So I stayed there, and the the woman that was there 
we became very good friends. And she finally told me one day, she said, Lori, I think you're a great mother to your little girl. And I've watched you. And I think that you can do this. I don't think that you, you have to give your baby up for adoption. I see in you that you can do this. You, you have it. You know, she said, now I'm an adoptive waiting to be an adoptive mom, but I see the qualities in you and you have the qualities to be a good mom to this child. And, you know, it's your decision, but I, I encourage you to keep the baby. Um, and I prayed about it and I wasn't sure. And, um, there was this guy that had liked me all through high school and he was in the military and the Navy and we had become reacquainted. And he said, you know, why don't you keep the child and I will come home and I will marry you and I will take you and, and the, the children and bring you to California with me and we'll, we'll just set up house here. And I was like, are you crazy? Why would you want to marry someone who had two children that weren't yours? And, you know, and he said, no, I, I want to do this. Let's do this. So, um, that's what I did. I was able, I, I thought about it and I said, well, it's one way I can keep my baby. So um, I married this, this gentleman. Um, we moved to San Diego and we set up home and I loved it. And we had a sweet little family and um, he would go off to sea for six months periods and come back home. And, um, and I got a little restless during that time um, that he would be away. And I started making friends and hanging out because I was still in my early twenties. So um, it's kind of what you do. And so, um, and then he was, you know, young. And so when he came home and he would hang out with his, his friends and things. So we ended up really growing apart. And um, about seven years into the marriage, it, um, it, you know, of course, there was nothing of substance there. So we ended up divorcing. And uh, we're still, you know, we weren't for many years, but we're able to be friends today. Um, and um, after that, I went back home to my parents' home with my two little girls, and uh, my parents and I still did not get along well, so uh, I ended up leaving and taking my girls, and I moved into what is known as transition housing for people who don't have a home, but they're kind of homeless and they have children, so I went into this program, and I began to go to school. Someone said, why don't you, you're such an intelligent person, why don't, why don't you go to school, why don't you go to college? And I was like, I, I can't, because I ruined my life, I had children, and they were like, Oh, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You know, go and take yourself to college and go to school. So I enrolled in school, and um, I got back into the swing of things. And, and academics had always been a strong suit of my life. And so I went back to school, and I earned um, some degrees, and uh, I started establishing myself as, um, as a working professional. And when I finished my um, – my uh, secondary um, degree, my, my post-grad studies, um, I got a job uh, in the city where I lived, and I was appointed as a judge. Now, let me just put a pen in my story right there. When you have a person that is not um, emotionally stable and they can't make good choices and decisions for themselves, they probably ought not make decisions for other people. Now, I'm I'm just going to stand on that principle there. That is my truth. Um, but I was able to go by the law and um, read the laws and what the law said. If you had violated that, then I was probably going to issue a, a warrant for your arrest and I was going to uh, deprive you of your freedom. Um, but um, it was a time, and I look back and I see grace and mercy on my life because I had the responsibility of other people's um, lives and freedoms in my hand. And 
fortunately, even though I was probably at my heaviest at that time um, and in the deepest, deepest throes of my disease and my insanity, um, God did help me to make good decisions. And I have officers and uh, people that I work with, court administrators and, and staff there that I still stay in touch with. And they said, you know, you were always one of the most impartial judges and one of the fairest people. And I'm like, there really wasn't much about me that was fair at that time, but they, you know, they, they felt like my judgments were right. And so when I look back on that, I, I know that it was God um, that was working in me and through me because I didn't have enough sense to not eat a half a pack of Oreos before I went to bed at night. But God gave me the ability to make good decisions and good sound judgments through that. So even though he and I weren't on great terms um, at that time, I was still very angry. He did bless me in, in my uh, professional work that I was able to do a good job for him and that I know that all the credit and glory for anything that I did in that position goes to him. And there were some very tough cases that I had to adjudicate. And I know that God gave me the wisdom to do the right thing and to make the right choices um, through that. So um, I, I look back and that's one of the areas where I can see that God really did work in my life. Um, I got remarried to one of the officers that worked uh, at the police department um, after having been divorced for a few years. And um, he was a you know nice guy, and we had been friends for many years. So uh, we, remar- we got married. It was his first marriage, and we um, continued to grow our family. I had a son, and um, we uh, looked like the perfect family. And about three years into the marriage, um, I went out one day. I went to a church function. I came home, and I got sick at the church function. I got very sick and had to leave and come home. And when I came home, I remember pulling in the driveway, and I had the two younger children with me. The oldest daughter was with my parents at the church function. And when I pulled into the driveway, it was in June, and I was in a minivan with the leather seats and I heard God's voice audibly and clearly say, leave the children in the car. And I'm like, it's 90 degrees out here. It's hot. I need to take my kids. And the voice is very clear. and said, leave the children in the car. And so I left the van running and I said, hey, guys, I'm going to go and open the door and make sure that um, I said, because my husband had worked the night before. And so I said, let me see if daddy is awake yet, because we might need to go in and be really quiet. So I took my house key off the ring and I went in and I walked into um, the mud room and I could see through to the family room and I saw him sitting on the couch and he had his service weapon in his hand. And so I, I went in and I called him by name and I said, hey, is everything okay? And he just started, I can't take this anymore. And, I'm, you know, he started this long, just soliloquy about him not wanting to live and that he was, he was getting ready to kill himself. And I didn't know what to do. And I darted up a prayer to God. And I said, oh, my God, give me wisdom. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, God. I don't know how to handle this. And so I started trying to calmly speak to him. And he was still adamant that he was getting ready to shoot himself. And so I said, well, listen, it's hot. The kids are in the car. And I need to bring them in now. You know, I can't leave them out there. They have to come inside. And if you want them to see you do this and you want to see them, you know, and I don't know where I got that boldness. Uh, to say that, I said, then you're going to have to do it in front of them. He said, don't bring them in. I said, I'm bringing the children in because it's hot and they're tired and they want to see their daddy. So I said, you know the rule, the gun can't be out when the children are home. Give me the gun. And he's like, no, you're not taking my gun. 
give me the gun, it has to go away now. I said, now I can call some of your officers to come here and get the gun, or you can give it to me to lock up. So he did give me the gun. I did lock it up. And when I went out to get the children at the car to bring them in, I did call um, his command staff to let them know I needed someone to come to the house to, to retrieve the gun. It couldn't stay there. So um, the children came in, and he just, you know, held them, and he cried, and they didn't know why he was crying. But they just sat there with him for like an hour, just sitting still and just loving, just saying, I love you, Daddy. I love you, Daddy. And um, it calmed him down. But after that, we went and we had him assessed, and they diagnosed him as being bipolar. So on top of the traumas from my life and my childhood and uh, being angry with God for taking my dad, now I have this sick husband who is bipolar. He's a police officer all of this, and again, the only thing that was constant and steady in my life was the food. So I turned back to the food, and I ate and ate over this, and I coped with all these things that were piling up in my life with food. And um, I am short. I'm only 5'1", and I ballooned up to 280 pounds. And at my heaviest for years, I, I hovered between to 260 and 280, and I would lose and gain and lose and gain. And then at one point in time, I lost quite a bit of weight. And so I was able to buy a whole new wardrobe, and I went down for me from a 26W petite down to an 18 women's petite. That was a big range of, um, of sizes. So I was able to get a brand new wardrobe that was, you know, a 16, 18, and I was feeling good about myself. And um, I still kept the larger clothes in in the extra bedroom for some reason. I was always, I guess, afraid that I was going to go back up and balloon back up to that size. But um, I, and I would go as like an accordion, and I would go between the wardrobes. And if life was good, then I was in a smaller size. And when life got hectic and it was happening and it was out of control, then I would balloon back up to the larger size. So for many years, I kept two separate wardrobes, two seasons of this clothing, two seasons of this clothing and this size, and I would just vacillate and I would rotate my closets depending on what was going on in life, which size I wore. When life was hectic, I was in the 26W, W petite. Um, When life was a little bit better, I was down in the 16 and 18. And through all of this, the one thing that was constant besides the food was that I was mean because I was crazy. The food made me crazy. I ended up developing um, type 2 diabetes. Um, And so I was on a pill regimen that I had to take each day. And after a few years, uh, two or three years, the pills no longer worked, and I became insulin dependent. And for most people, just hearing that you have the diagnosis of diabetes would be enough for them to – moderate or change uh, their behavior or their eating. Um, But for a certain type of hard drinker, uh, which I was with food, uh, those those types of appeals just were not operative for me. And so I would go and I would get ready to eat or go out to dinner and I would take my insulin pen with me and depending on what I wanted to eat, how much insulin I shot up. Now I had a prescription to do so many you know, just a little bit, but I knew how to do it according to what I was eating. So if I was having a lot of bread or pasta or sugar and dairy, 
I would take a lot more insulin and I would shoot it so it would uh, level out my blood sugar. And so I self-medicated with that for a few years. Um, And I thank God today that I don't have any neuropathy, any blindness, any of the peripheral uh, things that happen with diabetics. And so um, this went on, this insanity of eating and and, um, taking insulin to keep my blood sugars level uh, went on for probably four or five years. And um, I continued to eat and back and forth between the wardrobe sizes. And just a lot of times when people have diabetes, they're mean, their um, temperament is not stable. So I was already unstable emotionally just from the things I've been through in life. I was unstable because of the diabetes and I was just mean. And sometimes um, I can be very sarcastic and I have a very quick wit and I'm very quick on the draw with my responses. And, you know, sometimes, a lot of times it's very funny things that I come up with. And people tend to have a lot of laughter and enjoy being around me for that reason. But at the same time, I can be very cutting, just very cutting. And um, sometimes I would say, wow, to myself, wow, that was super mean. Um, And I just really became a real witch. And if I were a person that that swears, I would tell you the real word that I became. It's a rhyming word. Um, But I I got to the point where I couldn't stand myself. Like, I was like, girl, you need to chill. You, you are so, you're so out there. And I was just so unkind and so mean. And I would hurt people's feelings, and I would not even think twice about it. And I would never offer an apology. And I would never feel bad for what I said because I could justify, well, they said this and they did that. And so I justified my anger and my meanness towards people based on things that they had done to me. And, um, I mean, I really, I, I made myself sick, y'all. I couldn't even stand to be around myself sometimes. And I would, of course, go and medicate myself to sleep with food so I didn't have to deal with me, let alone other people dealing with me. And this cycle continued and continued, and finally one day I woke up, and I, you know, I was like, Bill, this had to stop, but I had no clue. And um, I just told God, I said, you know, I, I don't even know if you're listening. I don't know if you're there. I don't know how you feel about me, but I just know I can't go on like this. Um, I had become depressed, and I had been on medication for my depression. I had been in talk therapy, which are all great things for me. I believe in them. Um, and I just, just said to God, I don't even know if you're dealing with me anymore. I don't know if, if you hear me. I don't, I don't know what you think of me. Um, but, you, you know, I, I need some help. And I don't know where to go besides you. What do I do? Are you even there? First of all, let's, let's see. Are you even there? Can you let me know if you hear me? Is this thing on? Hello, God, can you hear me? Are Testing, one, two, three. If you're there, I need some sort of sign. I need something, you know, I was hoping for a lightning bolt or like this, this voice to come and like shake my home or something like so I could, I could know for sure because sometimes I think, was that a sign? Well, maybe it wasn't. Well, it could have been sort of, but I needed a clear sign that you hear me, you see me, and you are interested in having a relationship with me. And so I went back into OA and I said, I need this to work for me. I've been struggling with this for years. And if you're there and this is how you want me to find you, it's through OA, 
let me know. And it was then that I stumbled upon a vision for you. They were just starting to kick it off as a vision for you, and I found it. I don't even remember how. I think I was on the OA website and looking for, I don't know how. I I can't even remember how I I stumbled into the rooms of a vision for you, but my behind landed there on the front row when they were just starting the new meeting, and I listened. And there were some hard-hitting, powerful voices that were very passionate about this program of recovery and that they pulled no punches, and they knew this big book inside and out, and they were convinced that this was the way. And I listened to those voices, and I got up, and I dialed in each morning, and I listened, and I listened to that passion and compassion, and my heart began to soften, and I I heard a small voice. It wasn't the lightning bolt I was expecting. It wasn't the earth shaking, and that voice said, this is for you. This is where you belong. I want you here. And I continued to listen, and I, I called a person that I heard speaking very frequently and sharing on the meetings, and I said, you know, I really resonate with a lot of what you're saying, and when you have an opening and you can sponsor, I would love for you to be my sponsor, and I'm going to wait for you because, you know, and I don't know how, long, how many months it was going to be, and it was in the fall, and Thanksgiving was coming up, and so I was like, you know, if it's not until the first of the year, that's fine. You know, have that diet mentality going on. If you don't have an opening until the first of the year, that's great, and I'll wait. And so she caught me, and she caught me like two days before Thanksgiving. And she's like, hey, Lori, you ready to go? And I was like, mm, my national holidays going to come up, so can we wait until next week? And she said, absolutely not. Do you want it or not? And I said, of course I want it, you know. And she said, well, Call me on, you know, Thursday morning, which was the national holiday, Thanksgiving. She said, mm-hmm, but it's also just Thursday. And I was like, hmm, Thanksgiving is just Thursday. Interesting. It's always been Thanksgiving. But, no, it turns out it's just a Thursday, guys. Um, and so I called her that morning, and we went through the big book. Uh, we started on the, on the uh, program, and we went through a couple of pages, and we talked, and she shared, and she expounded upon it. And that day, Thanksgiving, was my first day of abstinence. And um, I felt so happy and free, and I felt like I was, my, my brain was kind of still foggy, but I remember connecting with people. And I remember not being so anxious about the food, and is it going to be enough when it gets around to me, and is everybody going to get the best part of the, the macaroni and cheese, is everybody going to get this and that or all the rolls, the homemade rolls going to be gone by the time the plate gets around to me at the table. I started listening to people. And I started listening to their voices and how they sounded and what they were saying and what was going on with them. And that that Thanksgiving was my first day of abstinence on the national holiday. And I went through that Thanksgiving abstinent. And I've been through every Thanksgiving since then abstinent because of the gift of this program, because someone was willing to say to me, do you want it or not? I don't care that the world says that tomorrow is Thanksgiving. Do you want it or not? Because if not, there's somebody else that I can say. Do you want it? And I was willing to say yes, and I had the courage. And um, I began to work this program, and this program began to work me. And it got all the hurt out of the years of abuse, of the years of being feeling like I was neglected, of the anger with God because 
I was just very, very much an angry person um, from the time I was little. I felt like he took my dad, he took my life, my normal life, and gave me this crazy life as a PK, and everything was turned upside down, and then you let me get pregnant when I was a teenager, you let me get raped, you let this happen, you let that happen. And I blamed God for all of these things that had happened in my life. I blamed him for me marrying this guy who ended up being bipolar and crazy, and I'm having to take care of him and estate married to him for like 20-something years. We just divorced last year. And I blamed God for all of that. And you know what he told me? One day he got tired of me because I was always tired of me, and I think that God got tired of me. And he said, let me explain something to you. What I did when you were a teenager and you got pregnant was I blessed that baby that she did not have one birth defect. She was healthy. She was strong. I gave her a great sense of intelligence. And today that baby uh, is a physician. Um, and he said, I, I blessed her and I protected her all through her life. I gave you healthy children. When, you, when your body was violated, I was there with you. And I, I stitched that baby together in your womb healthily. I made her a beautiful young woman. She is a great wife to her husband today. Her skills, and, and she's a professional person. She's a nurse. And he said, and I gave her, from her from the pain that was, she was created through, I gave her the ability to help other people who are hurting. And she helps them through their difficulties. And I gave her a heart of gold. And that son that you had, I didn't let the bipolarism get into his body. He's a healthy, strong, vibrant, productive service member. He, he takes care of his country, of his family. He is a great young man. I did all of that for you. When you got the diabetes, I put you with great physicians. When you were abusing your body with the food and the insulin because you were over-medicating, I did not let your kidneys fail. I did not let your eyes fail. I did not let your nerves become damaged. I did not let your heart become damaged. When he called me, on, when I tried to call God out on his stuff and what he allowed happen in my life, he turned the table and he told me all the things that he had protected me from. I had no idea. I had never looked at it like that. I looked at it as you allowed these things to happen. And he says, you don't know the half of what I've blocked from happening to you. I worked this program. I began to devour this book. I studied it. I learned it inside and out. And I began working the 12 steps. I worked it through the first time with that great sponsor. She's still on the line. She's still preaching this, this message on, on a vision for you. And I'm so grateful for her. And she refers her people that she sponsors now. A lot of times they text me or call me. And I'm happy to share what has been so freely given me. I worked with another sponsor. I went through and she took me through this program in a way that I had never gone before uh, last year. And um, she gave me assignments and work to do, which I've always done. But this time I went deeper than I've ever gone before. And I really worked on things. And I knew I was powerless over food. And I knew my life was unmanageable. Um, and I came to believe at a different level uh, about God. And I made a decision on a, on a purely organic level again. I, I started taking these steps on deeper levels, and I went and did the work. And when I did my four-step work, I was able to look at my wrongs in a whole different light. I always looked at this person did this, and that person did that, and I was able to forgive and 
free so many people from the prison of my mind. I had my own Alcatraz in my mind, and I imprisoned people through unforgiveness, through anger, through bitterness, through resentment, and I went through each cell in my Alcatraz mind, and I freed every prisoner that I've been carrying. I freed those family members that abused me. I freed that man that raped me. I freed my father who had rejected me, I felt. I freed God who had allowed all these things to hurt. And the last prisoner that I opened the cell for was myself. I freed myself. God opened the door and he let me walk free as a free woman, as a contributing member to society, as a child of God, as someone who can reach out in this program and help my fellows. And now I realize that everything I went through Every hurt, every trauma, every pain, every rejection, it connects me to someone in this program. Someone has been abandoned by their family members. I can, I can speak to that, and I can understand that pain. Someone has been abused physically or sexually. I can speak to that pain because of my experience. Someone has been um, angry with God and embittered and and felt like God has not treated them justly. I can relate to that. So now I see that all the experiences, all the difficulties, all the trials, all the hurts, all the tears, all the weight gain, all the weight loss, all the clothing, all the sizes that I've been, the anger, the resentment, the bitterness, the craziness, the insanity, the uncontrollable eating, the the um, just callous nature that I have. I can relate to so many people because of what I went through. If I had a normal, quote-unquote, normal life, and it would have been run as a meal, I could never reach the number of people that I'm able to reach through program, and even through my church, and even through speaking engagements that I'm invited. I would never have the level of reach that I, I enjoy now with people, and people always tell me after I go and I do a lot of speaking engagements and I travel and I'm able to share personal, more on a personal level about the things that I've been through. I, I'm invited to speak to women's groups, you know, for women who are recovering from trauma or something like that. And I'm able to really go and get intimate with them about my story. And I would never have been able to do that if I had not gone through it. And I was able to finally thank God for the trials that I've been through. And that's when I knew I was healed. That's when I knew I was recovered. When I can say thank you for the things that I have been through. Thank you for freeing me from that. And through this process and working this program, I have been able to be truthful about what I've been through. I've been able to tell people about my the molestation that I endured as a child, the rape that I endured, um, dealing with a, a man that was bipolar, dealing with my depression. I am now an honest person. And, and before, when people saw me, and they said, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I lied a lot. Every week at church, I say more lies are told at church on the weekends than any other place and any other time during the week. Because we go to church, we paste on that smile. You guys have your pasty smiles. And we go and we say, hey, how are you? I'm great. I'm fine. 
you know, my husband and I just had a, you know, World War III in our home, but I'm here. I'm fine. How are you? And, you know, we're sitting there and I'm mad at him and he's mad at me, but we're smiling and we look like a great family and look at our little perfect children and, you know, and I was just so dishonest and I've decided that I'm going to be honest and really tell people what I feel and what I've been going through because they need that transparency. They need that um, that ability and, and almost permission to not be perfect. And I grant that to everyone. You don't, you don't have to be perfect with me because I know the facade. There is no such thing as a perfect person. There's no such thing as a perfect life. So let's go ahead and, and set that aside and let's just be real so that you can live a little bit today so that you can be happy, joyous, and free, and I can be too. And so through this process of the last uh, five or so years that I've been on a vision for you. I have worked through this. I've done the work. I've gone through. I've gone through this big book. I I devoured this book. I love it. I love this book. I'm so grateful for it. And I've learned so much, and I continue to learn. Even though we go through day in and day out, we read a couple of paragraphs, we go through the big book, we get to page 164, and we go and start again. Go back to the doctor's thing, and we get started again. And every time, you would think that after a while this would get boring and become monotonous, but the voices are fresh and new every day, and the stories and the experience, and I just keep rolling with it. And through the years that I've been on a vision for you and been in this program, I have gone from, uh, I have another wardrobe size. I went from my 26W and I went down to 24 and 22 and 20 and 18 and 16 and 14 and 12. And my wardrobe size has changed tremendously. And yesterday when I got up and I got showered and I got dressed, I put on a size two. And today, by God's grace, when I get up and I get dressed and I shower and dress today, I will put on a size two. And I will get out into the world and I will share my experience, strength, and hope with another person. And I will share what God has done for me with another person. And I will go and I will eat some abstinent food and I would, that would be a, a side to my day. My day is about living now. My day is about engaging with people. My day is about how can I carry this message to someone who's still suffering. My day is about how can I encourage someone? How can I put a smile in someone else's face? How can I, I just be transparent with someone? I'm no longer a lying witch. I love myself. I love my life. I am so happy to be me today. I was so much a prey to misery before I got recovered. And now I'm happy. I'm joyous. I'm free. And I am living in order to go and give life to other people. And I'm going to spread this message of recovery to those who still suffer, if they want it. And I am just so happy to be of service to God. And I'm transparent, so I'm no longer a lying, uh, mean, angry witch of a person. Um, people embrace me. I, I'm going to my nephew's graduation today. I have people and friends on Facebook that I've never met that are, that are in town, and they're like, please make sure I meet you today. I'm like, wow, they want to meet me. And they're like, oh, I just so enjoy talking with you, and the things you post on, on social media are so funny and great, and I can't wait to meet you. And I'm thinking, me? You want to meet me? And these are people who some of them have never met me. Some of them remember me from being so mean and angry when I was young, and they're like, I can't wait to see you. Me? This is me, God. This is the life you've given me. 
oh, my goodness, I have people that are looking forward to seeing me today that 10, 20, 30 years ago would have cringed and run in the other direction because I was so mean. And I have one size clothing today. One size. I wear a size two. My clothing is a size two. That's all I have in my wardrobe, hanging in my closet, folded in my drawers, because that's all I need for today. Because today, food is not the biggest part of me. My relationship with God, my relationship with others, and my relationship with myself are what I live for. Food, I'm able to take in the the calories I need to sustain my energy. I'm able to take the nutrients in that my body needs to work properly, and that's all. God has cursed dairy for me. I swell if I eat dairy. I used to love dairy. I can't eat it anymore. He has cursed white products for me. I don't take in the sugar, the dairy, the flour, um, the potatoes, the rice. He's cursed those for me. They, they, do, um, they maladjust my blood sugars. So those are things that I can't include in my diet today. And I'm okay because there are a million other things I can eat. I can eat any green vegetable. I can eat um, baked sweet potatoes. I can eat soy protein. I, I'm a vegan. And, um, and so there's so many things he has given me to eat, so many fresh fruits, and, and it's delightful. I, I enjoy when I eat, and then I'm done because I have other things to do, and I'm able to be a part of life at last. And I am, I'm so grateful because you guys gave me this ability. You guys told me about what God had done for you, that he would do it for me, I tested the waters, I tried it, and I found out that you guys, you guys are right. You're trustworthy, you're true, and the same things that God did for all these voices I hear on this program and all of the happiness and the people who are leading lives that are free from the, the bondage of food and the bondage to self, those things have finally come to reality for me. And I am living life on its terms, and I'm okay with anything that happens because God has never been, not once in the existence of this world, has he been to a surprise party. So anything that happens to me, he's already made a way for me to transverse it or to go through it or for um, the, the problem to be removed or whatever it may be. And this eating is a silly thorn in my flesh, and I have to be very careful about what I do consume and I have, to be, I have to stop and be cognizant about what I'm eating. I no longer eat mindlessly. And um, I pray and I ask God each day to let me be of service and use to someone else. And if I'm in the food, I cannot do that. And so for today, I choose to be of service to my fellows. And I hope I've been of service to someone on this meeting this morning. And I hope that I continue to be of service, whether it's to people in my community, in my home, in my, in my church or wherever I may be, I pray that I can continue to be of service to others and on a vision for you. And I thank you for the opportunity to share my experience, strength, and hope today. Um, I thank you, Leah, for the invitation, and I thank you for everyone who has listened. Um, and I'm happy to turn it back over to Leah now and answer any questions that anyone may have. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lori, for sharing your extraordinary story with all of us this morning. Just an incredible story of transformation. Your experience, strength, and hope is truly inspirational and miraculous and nothing less. Thank you. The share ID for today's presentation is 12,956. That's 12956.
Lori's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. And we're going to transition to a question-answer segment. You can press star 1 to unmute. Please give me your name, including the initial of your last, first initial of your last name as well. Elizabeth D. Elizabeth D. Paula. Paula. Tala T. Tala. Oh, Tala. Tala T. Okay. Marla. Marla. Okay. Anyone else? All right, let's start with these three. Elizabeth D. Linda. Is that Linda? Uh, yeah, sorry, I couldn't unmute fast enough. Linda. Okay. okay, Linda. And the first letter of your last name, Linda? M. All right, thank you. Okay, please everybody mute except for Elizabeth D. Um, good morning. My name is Elizabeth D. I'm a recovered um, compulsive reader in the Boston area. <clears throat> thank you, Leah, for your extraordinary service, and thank you, Lori, for what was a stunning story this morning, riveting and so inspirational, um, truly. My, my question for you, I have a lot of questions, but this is the main question um, that I'm curious about is your food. When, how, how does it come to you when a food begins to become more important or a food behavior or something related to food? When it becomes more important than, what, um, than, than what's happening in your life, when you start to hear that food calling you, um, how do you hear it? How does it manifest? And, how, and what is your spiritual discipline for going to, um, to your higher power to address um, that, that problem? I, I ask this because I, um, you know, I, I just find that there are times when, um, you know, I, I'm recovered and yet, you know, I, st I still feel the food calling. And um, so I'm just curious about how, how you deal with that, and I'll pass. Thanks for the uh, question, Linda. Um, so here's my truth about the matter. Salad never calls to me. I don't have dreams, and I don't think extra about lettuce. I don't think about red lettuce. I don't think about green leaf lettuce. I don't think about radicchio or whatever. So I know that that's safe for me. If I have um, a topping or if I have um, something that I add to it or that salad dressing, I want a little bit more of that. If I think about it a second time or a third time, then I know it's something that's problematic for me because bell peppers do not speak to me after I have them or I don't dream about them. So the things that, I, that come back to my memory a couple of times, I'm very aware that that may be a problem because I don't obsess when I eat some asparagus, some grilled asparagus. Um, I don't obsess when I eat, um, you know, um, maybe some um, roasted beets or something. I don't, I don't ever wake up in the middle of the night and say, oh, my goodness, I wish I could have some more of those roasted beets. I wish I could have some more of that broccoli salad. So if I know that it pops in my head a couple of times, then I know I need to be alert and aware. And there are just some things that, 
God just naturally tells you that are not for you because you have indigestion or you have, um, you know, some people are lactose intolerant. There are just some things that do not digest well with your with our bodies. Um, and I know that those are things that God has said don't put into your body. And so I listen to that because I no longer want the discomfort um, that that accompanies some of the things that I was eating. And so if I have discomfort from eating it, I never have um, cravings for Brussels sprouts, so I know that they're safe to eat. And so if the thing is coming back in my mind or if I went somewhere and I had something and I'm like, oh, that was good, I want to swing by there again, you know, tomorrow or in a couple of days and I'm going to pick it up again, I know that I need to say, okay, God, maybe that's something I don't need to have in my in my dietary repertoire because I'm thinking about it and I don't want to obsess about food anymore. I have lived my life so long with that that I am so grateful to not have it. It's like getting poison ivy. You're exposed to it. You itch. You feel awful. You never want to experience that again. I'm now like that about food, that I don't want to. I know that I can get obsessed with food. I know that I can figure out a way. If I want to sit with this for a few minutes, I can figure out a way to justify eating some macaroni and cheese today. It's my, my nephew's graduation. We're having a big family dinner. It's one time. I can justify any behavior that I want to have, but I just don't want that anymore. I don't want to feel the way I feel after I eat dairy. I don't want to feel sluggish after I eat pasta. I just don't want that. I want my energy to be used in a different way today, and I want to be available for God. And if I fog up my brain with food, I'm no good to anybody because I'm going to sleep. Uh, And I'm not going to be available to answer your calls, your text messages. When you reach out to me today, you will not hear back from me if I get into the food. And you may never hear from me again because I don't know that I can come back from that again. And I'm just not willing to play that game anymore. I'm, I'm not willing to chance it. It's not worth it to me. And so I know that if if I'm thinking about something a couple of times after I've eaten it or a couple of times before I eat it, it's probably something that is not good for me. And I'm just not willing to roll the dice with it anymore. I hope that helps. Thank you, Elizabeth D., for the question. Tala T., star one to unmute. Hi, thank you. This is Tala. Um, thank you, Leah, for your service. And thank you, Lori, for your deep share. Uh, my question is about uh, the freedom that you shared, uh, with your freedom from yourself and your freedom and relationship with God, uh, no longer blaming um, him. Can you share a little bit more about that, please? Sure. Um, I did some work um, on my relationship with God and what I really thought of him. And I decided, I'm going to be completely honest because, you know what, you already know God. You already know I'm mad at you. So, you know, let's not even play the game. I'm mad at you. I'm angry. I feel like there were some things that happened in my life you could have blocked, you could have protected me from, and you didn't. So let's have this, let's, let's hash it out. And and because, you know, I had always been raised that God is loving and kind and gentle, and we don't question God. He is sovereign, and he allows things to happen, and, you know, we accept what he allows, and we just thank him for it. You know, I was raised like that. And um, 
I needed to go a few rounds with God. And you know what? He's big enough and he's okay enough. And he was so great and he was such a gentleman about my anger. And he let me just spew it out like like a volcanic, uh, a volcanic eruption. And he let me just speak my anger in anger. And he didn't strike me down. And he let me cry. And he let me be bitter in my spirit and blame him for all of these things. And he's a big enough God to handle it. He can handle it. It's okay. It is okay to unburden ourselves and to cry and to scream and to yell with God. He gets it, and he wants us to get it out. He does not want me to be artificial. He doesn't want me to be fake. He doesn't want me to be fake with you all. He doesn't want me to be fake with myself and other people. He does not want me to be fake with him because he already knows it all. He's omnipotent. He knows everything. So for me to hold this in and act like it's not a real thing, it wasn't doing me any good, and, and he was like, okay, we just need to talk about it. I'm big enough to handle your anger. I'm, I'm big enough to handle your brokenness. Bring me all the pieces. Some of them you don't even have. I'm going to fill it in. I'm going to fix it for you. But my first thing was to be honest with God and say, I do not like the things that you've allowed to happen in my life. I do not like the choices you let me make. I mean, really, because truthfully, I was angry with him about some of my own choices. Um, And so God is big enough to handle whatever it is we've got, and we can unburden it to him. And I just had to go round and round with him. And now instead of, you know, I, I saw him because our parents are our first image of God, whatever your parents were or weren't. That is how we established what God was. So to me, because I had a father who worked for God, who wasn't merciful, then to me, God became someone who wasn't merciful. And I had to get to know him for myself. I could no longer, I love my daddy, love my daddy dearly, but I could, I had to remove him from being my God. And I had to let God be God and say, that's not how I am. He was not a good representation of me, but let me show you who I am. Let me show you how I love. Let me show you how I forgive. Let me show you how I reconcile and how I give beauty for ashes. Let me show you myself. Now that you're an adult, let, come to me and let me, let me reveal myself to you. And I, I tro- chose to trust God, and I did. And he has shown himself to be absolutely fabulous. He is trustworthy. He is loving. He is kind. And he is true. And that is um, just how I work through my issues with God. Thanks for the question. Thank you, Tala. Marla S., your turn. Star Good morning. I think, can you hear me? Mm-hmm, yes. Okay, great. Good morning, um, Leah. Good morning, Lori. Thank you so much for your story. Uh, Marla S. recovered in Iowa. I absolutely really love um the part about you finding your first day of abstinence on Thanksgiving and that you had a very loving, tough love sponsor. It sounds like someone that wasn't willing to play around with you and let you play around with the deathly illness that we have. Um, Can you talk more, please, on how you began the work with the sponsor? I'm really intrigued by that. Um, Like, what did your sponsor 
do to help you with your food in the beginning to help you put it down? Uh, what did your sponsor do to help you uh, figure out what you were going to do to structure your eating life? Um, how'd you get through the work then in the middle of it? Did you meet daily? Um, how'd you do the big book work together? And then what is your current relationship with your sponsor like now as far as contact and so on? Thank you. Thanks for the question. Um, so ironically, and people say this all the time, I'm looking for a food sponsor, I'm looking for a My sponsor, and she doesn't mind me saying her name, is Kim G. My sponsor never made it about food because it wasn't about the food. She put the responsibility on me, which I needed. Um, she, was, she is tough, but she's fair, and she's honest and true. And it, it's not about the food, everybody. Whether you're sitting here and you're over 300 pounds, whether you're sitting here and you're under 100 pounds, it has nothing to do with the food. The recovery is about my spiritual experience and my spiritual health. And when that malady is taken care of, everything else works itself out. So I never um, said, I, I have weighed and measured my food because that was part of my honesty. It wasn't something that my sponsor required of me. I needed to learn to be honest because I could go and I could eat um, a super size of McDonald's french fries and call that one serving. I needed the honesty. You know, a, a serving may be five french fries. I had to learn to measure out the five french fries or whatever the serving size actually was for food. You know, I'm not a good eyeballer. Um, so my plate looks very different today because I actually, actually eat the serving size. If the serving size is four ounces, guess how much I eat? I eat four ounces. I don't eat 12 ounces and call it four like I used to. But the responsibility for that, my sponsors never allowed me to lay the responsibility of my food on their shoulders. They never let me put the responsibility of my food on their plate. And I respect them for that. It was not their responsibility to hold me accountable for eating the right portion size. It was not their responsibility for, to tell me not to eat dairy because it swells you and it blows you up. My upper arms used to be really big. But um, a lady here in Atlanta explained to me that it's because your lymph nodes are swollen and they're not able to push the fluid out. So the fluid is collecting in your arms. And when I stopped eating dairy, sure enough, my arms started going down and the swelling in my body. And people kept saying, oh, my goodness, you're losing weight. You're lo what are you doing to lose all this weight? And I was so ashamed. I was like, I stopped eating dairy. I wasn't going to the gym five times a day. I wasn't doing – I stopped eating dairy, and a lot of the swelling went down in my body. My lymph nodes were able to pump. I started jumping on a rebounder and helping my cells to squeeze and start getting that fluid pushed out. I mean, it was simple stuff that I did to lose weight. But my sponsors would not take the responsibility of my food and my eating. You know what to eat. All of us have the knowledge. We know calories in, calories out. We know low-carb foods are better for our, you know, our um, glycemic index. We know everything we need to know to lose weight. We just need to apply it. And they put that responsibility on me. And when I sponsor... I do not take the responsibility of someone's food on my plate because we know what to do, and we need to hold ourselves to a higher level of accountability. If we don't know what to do, 
we go to the experts. We go work with dietitians. We work with our physicians. We let people who are licensed and who are educated in that manner help us to form those things. But I will not take it upon me. My sponsors did not. They put the responsibility on my plate to eat it or not eat it. But when I was in the food, I couldn't. My brain was too foggy to get the message. When I got out of the food, I got the message. I lived the message. I carry the message. I am the message today. Thank you, Marla S., for the question. Next up, Linda M., your question, please. Uh, yes, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. What um, my question is, is what puzzles me is the maintenance of uh, spiritual, con- my f- spiritual fitness, like it speaks of in our 10th step. So I guess it would be, how do you maintain spiritual fitness? Okay, thank you. That's a really good question, actually. Um, So there are um, boundaries that I have with myself. And when my eyes pop open in the morning in my bed, the first thing I do is say, thank you, God, for life. Now, how would you like to use this life you've given me today? That's the first conversation I have in the morning. The first thing I say, I will not, for my sake and for the sake of anyone that crosses my path each day, I will not begin my day without God. I have grown in my discipline. I have my quiet time in the morning. I sing a song. I pray. I read my, um, you know, do my religiosity, devotional books or whatever, um, and a vision for you is a part of my devotional time. And so in the morning, and I may be, um, you know, commuting to work in the morning during a vision for you, uh, or, um, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm at work and I will go into my office and I will have quiet and I will be on my call and on my meeting because that's part of what I need to be safe for the world for that day. You don't want a Lori that is not um, prayed up. You you don't want her. She's the witch. Um, She's the one with the dual wardrobe. Um, She's the one that can't be honest and truthful. And so nobody wants her. And so I I do what I need to do to make sure that I'm not her for that day. Um, I, I pray all throughout the day. I have learned that when things come in my life and I say, okay, God, I was not prepared for this today, you know, okay, you know, the, the um, roof got a leak. I was not prepared for a, roofy, uh, a leaky roof today, God. What would you have me to do about it? You know, who do I need to call? I was not prepared for, you know, the pump to go out on the pool or the heater in my pool is out right now. I was not prepared for that, God. What do I need to do? And I have learned in all things to go to the father of us all, the father of light who presides over us all is what the big book says. I have learned to go to God for everything. Okay, God, this luncheon meeting, they don't have anything that's vegan. They don't have anything that I can eat. They don't even have salad dressing that doesn't have dairy in it. What, what would you have me do? I'd have you eat a dry salad, Lori. Okay, then that's what I'll do. Um, and so anything, whether it's a situation that I get into that I, I didn't anticipate, whether it's something that in that moment that has popped up, 
there's someone in here that is being unkind to me, and I really want to retaliate, God, but I'm going to let you have this moment with them through me, and I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to bring the level of anger and frustration they're delivering to me. Will you come and you love them through me? And I have learned that that is my that is now my knee-jerk response is to pray. But it took discipline. It took me blowing up and then having to come back and say, I need to make an amends to you because I blew up and I should. And then I know the next time I'm ready to blow up. Oh, God, help me. Help me. Sometimes that's all I can say is help me, Lord. That's the, the most sincere prayer that I can utter at that moment and that's to keep me from losing my cool and hurting someone's feelings and having to go and make amends and putting myself in a position of guilt or shame about my behavior. And I, I'm just, and I'm, I'm not a hundred percent with it. I still struggle because I still want the carnal me. I want the real me to come out sometimes on people who are not kind to me or kind to my family or to my friends or something. And I want to retaliate, but vengeance belongs to God. And so I have to say, okay, help me because I want to go off on this person, God. And, you know, in in a very Christian way, I want to tell them where they can get off, but I have to surrender my will to God's will because my job today is to let God be seen through me. I want everyone to see God through me. That's all. It's not about me. It's not about what someone says about me or does to me. It's not about me. Everything in my life has to be about God because there are people that are searching for him and they're waiting for an aha moment when I'm not representing God. To say, see, I knew, I knew you were just faking. I knew that you guys, you know, people who claim all this with God are just hypocrites. They're looking for those those moments for me to be a hypocrite. And if I am in myself, I'm going to be a hypocrite. But if I'm in God, I'm a new creature, and I'm going to rightly represent Him at all times. And that is my goal, and my expectation of myself every day is to rightly represent God in and out of these rooms. Thanks for the question. Yes, thank you, Linda M. Okay, who else has a question for Lori? This will be our final invitation for questions. Kathleen Chris M. Queens. I heard a Kathleen. Mary. Mary. The first letter of your last name? Susie. B. D. There was a gentleman. Scott Z. from Queens. Anyone else? Final invitation, star one to unmute, to pose a question. Pam M? Pam M. Going once, twice, and three times. Okay. Everybody mute, please. I believe there was a Kathleen M. Am I correct about that? Kathleen O. Oh, there we go. Thanks, Kathleen. Go right ahead. Thank you, Leah. And thank you, Lori, for your fabulous heartfelt um, share this morning. So I have a question for you that I have people ask me sometimes, and I'm never quite sure how to guide them, is how do you forgive the people who physically harmed you? Wow, you came right for the the heavy hitting stuff. Um, it took a long time. I'm just 
not going to lie about that. It took time. That was not something that um, came easily to me, and it was not something that um, was just a euphoric feeling um, because I was very angry, and um, I don't understand how you can hurt a child and violate a child, um, but I had to give it to God. I, and, and that, I know it sounds so cliche, but it was a process. Um, it was a journey. Um, and finally, when I prayed enough for myself and I began to pray for those people, and um, even like with my, my husband um, <laughs> that I, I divorced last year, um, you know, I'll, I'll talk to people uh, and, um, you know, I will try to um, be true to myself but kind to him, if that makes any sense, when, you know, he wasn't unkind to me. He was, he was unkind to me, but I don't share those things with people about that because when I began to pray for him to free myself, because as an addict, we're always looking for how this is going to benefit us. So I knew that I needed to free myself, and the, the freedom for me was in the process of forgiving him. And so the best that I could do some days was say, God, bless him to death. Just bless him to death, God. And I meant that. Now, I meant it in a different way. God was going to receive it in a different way. You know, mine was, you know, you can bless him to death by bus. You can bless him to death by sickness. You can bless him to death by poison. You can bless him to death by heart attack. You know, I had all these ways that God could bless him to death, but I had to pray. And that's all I could say was bless him to death in your way, God. And God just has kept him. Last I heard from the children, the daddy's alive and well. Good for him. Bless him to death, God. And some days I mean that, and some days I really mean that. But um, it took a, a while for me, and as I prayed for him, and even though it was tongue-in-cheek at first, um, I began to be sincere. And I have nothing against him today. I have nothing for him, let's be clear, but I have nothing against him today. And I understand that he is a sick person, and I feel sorry for him. I, I, I do feel a, a deep sense of sorrow for him that he has to battle a disease of his mind the rest of his life. I feel bad for him that he has to um, be in and out of hospitals and to stabilize his behavior and his, his well-being. I feel bad for him. I feel bad for the relatives. Some of them are dead. Some of them did not live long lives. Some of them did live long lives, and they had to live with the guilt of what they had done to me. And so I'm able, because of God, to look at people who have harmed me in a different way. I still don't understand how you can hurt a child. I, I, don't, I can't comprehend that. But I can understand from my own disease how sick you can become. When you are 5'1 and you weigh 280 pounds, that is sick. There was something very broken in your spirit. And so because of the experiences that I have had and that I've endured, how you can rape a young girl and, and harm her body and take um, a, a, safe, a sense of safety and, and trust and bend it and distort it, I don't understand how you can do that. But by God's grace, I have overcome and come through that. And so that is my experience and with that. And And sometimes I still struggle with 
with forgiveness of people, but I refuse to live in prison anymore. And my anger and my bitterness, my resentment, my hurt and pain imprisons me. Some of these people are dead. Some of these people have moved on with their lives and they don't think about what they did to me. But as long as I live it and I relive it, I am in prison. And I choose not to go back to Alcatraz today because I want to be as free as everybody else is. And as long as I'm holding and harboring resentment and giving a safe place for those tapes to keep replaying in my mind and not creating healthy new neural pathways, whatever they're calling it now in in the scientific world, as long as I'm re uh, regurgitating and reverberating from the hurts that I have, I'm not creating new paths in my mind and new happiness and new experiences. And that's what I want to be about today is the newness of life. Thanks for the question. Yes, thank you, Kathleen O. Mary, your turn. Please include the first letter of your last name. Yes, this is uh, Mary F. Um, Thank you. Uh, My question is, uh, you shared about at night and self-soothing with food. Uh, how did and you shared also what your morning routine looks like with connection with God? Can you share with us your night routine and how that has changed and especially during the time where you might have had withdrawals, uh, how you got through that and your night routine? Thank you. Yeah, good question. Um, so. <clears throat> Um, I was addicted to sugar for many years and the combination of sugar and dairy. Um, And then when I got off of sugar, I developed an addiction for crackers. And, you know, my friends that are not compulsive eaters, they don't get this. Saltine crackers, basic, not Nabisco brand. I like the store brand, and I I would eat two of them at a time, and I would add extra coarse salt. So that became my addiction. And... When I would eat it, I would have the swelling, you know, it retained the fluid, and my face would get puffy, my hands would get puffy, my ankles and legs, and I could just feel the puffiness in my body. And I knew that this was something that God had said no to me about. Now, you can eat a cracker today. You can eat, you know, five crackers. You can eat a serving size, whatever that may be, and never eat another cracker again in your life. But for me, saltine crackers with extra coarse sea salt is something that I struggle with. And when I get anxious, when I start thinking about saltine crackers and sea salt, I know that there's something going on that's disturbing my spirit. And so that is a trigger for me that when I think about the crackers and the salt and I really want it, I have to pray. And I say, God, you have cursed this for me. And I am feeling something that I don't want to talk to you about. When I started craving, um, and I had gone, you know, so long without sugar, and then all of a sudden thoughts of eating something sweet, why don't you get a, why don't you get an all-natural, made-from-fruit juice um, uh, ice cream bar with just fresh fruit juice and fresh pureed sorbet ice cream? What could be wrong with just having fruit that's just whipped up in a different way and frozen and put in a cute little container on a little wooden stick? When those thoughts come, I, I know those are triggers for me. And I say, God, there's, I'm feeling something. I'm feeling very uncomfortable about something. And we need to talk about it and find out what it is. 
So I know when I have these thoughts, when I have a craving for something, like I told you, lettuce never calls to me. So I know that if I start thinking about lettuce wildly, I'm, I'm avoiding something. I'm feeling uncomfortable. That is my barometer. When I'm thinking about a food, when I am obsessing about it, when I'm craving it, it is a barometer for me that I'm feeling something because I don't like to feel, y'all. I don't like to feel happy. I don't like to feel sad. I don't like to feel bored. I just don't do well with feelings. I don't have the skills. I didn't cultivate those skills as a young person to deal with feelings. I'm learning how to do that now through program. I'm gaining skills. But when I start having a craving in the evening or in the day, I know that I have to stop and I have to talk to God and say, I'm feeling uncomfortable. I need you. Help me because I want to eat crackers. And I stop and I pray. And in the evening, I sit back and I thank God because I didn't eat crackers today and see salt, extra coarse. It has to be extra coarse. Thank you that I didn't eat that today. Thank you that as I drove around in it, on the roads in Atlanta that you kept me safe. I do a, a, a Thanksgiving list each evening. I give thanks for all the things, and I thank him for the blessings that you did for me. I don't even have a clue about today. I don't even know what you protected me from today, but I thank you. And so I wake up looking to God, and I go to sleep focusing on God, thanking him for the day. Is there something I did not do that you wanted me to do today? Is there something that I did that you didn't want me to do today? And I've got to hash all that stuff out because sometimes I know I didn't do the right thing. And I don't want to make eye contact with God about it, but I do have to because if I don't, it's waiting to pounce on me in the morning and I'm going to start eating over it. So I have to clear my, my, my whole day with God before I doze off. And I used to do it as I dozed off, but I had to learn to be responsible and do it before I dozed off. I, went, I always went to sleep with a prayer on my lips, but now I take care of my business with God. And then if I go to sleep with a prayer on my lips, it is a prayer of thanksgiving, but not of the work that I should have done, my 10-step my work to clear out uh, the, the day. So I make sure that I do that each evening while I'm awake, while I'm cognizant. I do not play games with God. I don't play games with myself about my recovery. I do it while I'm awake. And I, if I fall asleep with a prayer on my lips, it is a prayer of thanksgiving and not the work that I should have done before I went to sleep. Thank you very much, Mary F., for the question. Susie D. Star Good morning. One. This yes. is Susie. Um, I so appreciate your story. I heard so much of mine in it. I, uh, I was sitting here watercoloring while I was listening to you and just stopped with my mouth dropped. I'm just, I'm just so grateful to you. Um, I guess I really didn't have a question. I just wanted to share my gratitude. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. That, that's lovely, the imagery of you doing watercolor while you're um, listening to the meeting this morning. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you, Susie. Scott C., your turn for a question. Thank you. Hi, this is Scott C. from Queens. Thank you so much. For what you shared i so touched i have a question i'm a co-food addict as well and i'm a co-food addict of other food addicts in the world and i was wondering at your sickest what did you need from somebody like me 
Um, thanks for the question, Scott. I'm not sure that I know what a co-food um, addict is. If you could explain that to me, then I can kind of tell from my perspective how that would be helpful or harmful. It's, it's oh, maybe I'm not saying it right. Somebody who's in relationship with another food addict. Um, I'm a food addict myself, but I'm in relationship to other food addicts. Got and it. at okay. your at your sickest, what did you need from someone in recovery from food addiction? Well, thanks. Okay, thanks for the clarification. If I could afford it, I could I could have hired somebody just not food out of my hand. That's really what I needed people to do is to to block me from eating things. Um, and that's why I'm so grateful that my sponsors made me responsible for. Um, for my food and my recovery. Um, birds of a feather, as we know, tend to flock together. And so I found that I was not surrounding myself with people who had healthy attitudes and relationships with food. I surrounded myself and I was with people who knew how to commiserate with me over food. So when I um, was depressed, when I was upset, I called my girlfriends that I knew were eaters and my friends that were eaters. And, oh, girl, let's go to our spot. Let's go, you know, you guys meet me. My husband is, you know, working my nerves. And I got people that commiserated with me about my, with my misery and my food. And when I got real with my recovery, I surrounded myself with people who were real about their recovery. And they no longer let me use food as a way to avoid dealing with my feelings. And I had to have accountability, and I had to get on the phone, and I had to call them, and I had to say, I really want to eat some crackers, saltine crackers, and salt right now, but I know that that's an indication that I need to talk, and I need to talk to God, I need to talk to another person who is recovered. And so um, now my friends, and I still have friends that are still sick that, that don't know this program, that don't have this program, and so when they call me and say, can you meet me at such and such a place, I say, why don't we meet on the belt line, bring your tennis shoes, and let's go for a walk and let's talk this out. And so I try to be for them what I need for myself now, even though they're not in recovery. Um, and so I try to use alternatives to food. Let's go and take a walk. Let's go sit, you know, right up to the lake. Let's go for a hike. Let's go. And so I give them the things that I need for myself where I am in recovery right now. Even though they may not be in recovery, I give them because that's what I have to offer. That's the life I live now. So I offer to my non-recovered friends who don't even know about program the recovery that I use and that's offered to me. You can call me and text me. We can talk about what's going on. I'm probably not going to meet you at a restaurant to discuss it because that's probably not where the solution is going to come from. A waitress is not going to deliver your answer. Um, and so I try to give them what I use for program, whether they're recovered or not. I use the techniques that I need for myself to stay in recovery and to work through the process. And again, waitresses do not deliver solutions. Thanks for the question. Thank you. Thanks, Scott C. Chris M., your turn. Star one to unmute with your question. Yes, thank you. Good morning. If um, you can't hear me because I'm actually outside walking, so maybe there's some wind. Is it okay? I hear you. Okay, thank you. 
Um, thank you so much, um, Lori, for that. Real, it really was a ministry of um, of your program. Fantastic. Thank you. So my question is, it's about the food. So I've had sponsors who want me to commit my food, and they say they're helping me be accountable. And I've had other sponsors who have not required me to commit food. And when I've sponsored, I've done either, you know, depending on what the person wants. But then how how do we know, I guess, how does the sponsor know that the individual is clean, eating clean and able to actually work in the steps? I mean, committing food is no guarantee either because we could commit and then lie and, and eat what we want. So it's, that's just like a sticky point for me. Can you speak to that, please? Sure. I'll share my experience with it. So if someone asks me, should they commit their food or should they not commit their food, my answer is yes. It's just a yes. You should commit your food or not commit your food. It's up to you. The truth of the matter for me is the honesty always came down to me. It is not incumbent upon my sponsor, upon my dietitian, upon my endocrinologist, or anybody else. I had to cultivate the honesty. I did not have that skill. Whether I call and commit my food to someone each day, I can tell you that I am going to eat air and drink water today, and I'm going to have, you know, uh, 125 gallons of air today, and I'm going to have, you know, um, 90 ounces of water today. And I can call you and I can give you the flowery pretty words and get off the phone and eat half of the brick house that I live in, and you'll never know. The accountability and the honesty must come from me, and I owe it to no one but me. I have to learn to be an honest person. When we have conversations with people, sometimes the food tells on us. And I can say, I ate an abstinent meal yesterday, and I didn't eat dairy, and I could have had 10 cows yesterday, and I could have driven to Wisconsin, eaten, eaten half of the cheese that is, that is in the state of Wisconsin yesterday, and you would never know that. But eventually... My food insanity comes out in my talks insanity and my thinking insanity and my acting insanity. So we're, we're, we think we're hiding the food, but it comes out in different ways. And whether you ever see me in person or not, you will be able to tell by the message that I carry and the life I live if I'm being true to my food or not. It tells. It comes out and it tells. So if, if you want to know if you should commit your food or not commit your food, my answer is yes. You should do what's right for you. But the honesty always is at your feet, and the responsibility is always on your plate. I do not ingest honesty that belongs to other people. If you need to get honest about your food, you know what? You need to get honest about your food. I don't ingest that. I don't take that responsibility just like I don't let people, um, you know, vomit their emotions and their feelings on me. I'm happy to talk to you about stuff. But you can't vomit on me anymore. I'm not a dumpster. I'm not a toilet. I'm not a trash receptacle. I can help you sort through some things in your mind and your life if, you, if you're ready to be honest about it. But there are just certain boundaries that I have, and I just don't 
make myself responsible for other people's food, and I don't make other people responsible for my food. My honesty must be at my table with myself at every meal. I hope that helps. Thank you, Chris M., for your question. Our final question for this morning comes from Pam M. Pam, star one to unmute with your question, please. Uh, Blessed morning. Thank you, Lori, so much for your share. I was also draw-dropped. So you shared a lot about the forgiveness that you had in your life um, from the program. And I'm wondering, um, and and I've asked this question before, uh, so I'd love to hear your perspective. Have you ever had the experience where um, you made an amends and you're, you're willing to make another amends, but you 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 know that um, what you've done is pretty unforgivable, and um, that uh, you know the person has already told you they wouldn't forgive you, and um, looking at your the harm your harm to them that you you're pretty convinced as well. Have you ever had to deal with that? And um, how do you resolve that within yourself so that you're not turning to the food? Thank you. Good question. Mm -hmm. Thanks for the question. Um, So there's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says, oh, I did something wrong. I'm really sorry about that. Um, Shame says, I am wrong. I am unredeemable. I am not worthy. So I had to learn to turn off the voice of shame and Guilt is healthy. Guilt um, convicts us that we need to change a behavior or that we have exhibited behavior that is not healthy and not helpful. And so when I feel guilt, I feel like I've done something wrong. I don't feel shame anymore that I am wrong. And so that was a big major paradigm shift for me because I always felt like I had this baby when I was a teenager. I was 16 when I had my first baby. Um, She is uh, 31. I am 47. Um, And I have felt shame for 31 years or for about 29 years for having that baby. I felt like I was not redeemable. And that is a lie of my disease. I am. I'm fully lovable by God. And I am fully loved by God. And do I deserve it? Probably not. But he likes to give me that love. And so I accept it. So I had to work on my shame, the voice of shame in me. And if I do something today, I may do something wrong. But that doesn't mean that I am a complete failure and my whole life has been utterly for nothing because I sat here and I stepped on your foot. And so I'm such a horrible human being. I don't deserve the next breath I draw. I stopped doing that. I don't play that game with my disease anymore. When my disease says to me that I'm, I'm no good, I'm not redeemable, ah, so we're going to stop that because God loves me anyhow, you know. And when I start getting those negative thoughts that I am just not as successful, I'm not, I sh- I'm not where I should be in life, I'm not that, eh, but God loves me anyhow. He loves me anyhow, whatever. Yes, I'm ratchet. Yes, I am this and yes, I'm that. Yes, I'm consistently inconsistent some days, but God loves me anyhow. And that has become the recording that I pray in my mind. You know, 
when I was losing weight, when I was 280 pounds, and then I slipped down to 278, then I went to 272, I'm 272 pounds, but guess what? God loves me anyhow. And when I was a 26 women, God loved me, and he loved me all the way down to a too petite now. God still loves me the same as when I was a 26W. And so that's the one thing that never changes is God's love for us. And once you grasp that and you get that, it transcends anything in your life, any shame, any guilt. Now today, if I do something wrong, I did something wrong. I make amends for it. The program has taught me how to do that. But that doesn't mean that I am someone wrong. I'm God's child, and he loves me. And that is the prevailing thought of my mind today. I'm going to make mistakes today because I'm going outside my house. And so I'm going to do something that is not correct today. But it doesn't mean that I am a mistake and my whole life is worthless. It's not. I'm being redeemed. I'm being recreated every day, moment by moment, more like the image of my creator. And I'm going to be making mistakes. And it's okay because God loves me anyway. He loves me anyway. And I don't use that as an excuse to go off the deep end with my food because God loves me so I can eat anyway because he's going to love me tomorrow whether I gain 10 pounds today or not. I don't play those games with myself anymore. I do what I need to do to stay in good graces with God, with my fellows, and also myself because I have to be at peace with myself. And so um, that is just my methodology that I, no matter what situation I, I fall and I find myself in each day, I remember that God loves me anyhow. doesn't matter. And I, I hope that if you take nothing else from my share today, that you take that God loves you no matter what. You are wholly acceptable to him. Everyone on this line, everyone listening to the recording, wherever you are in your life, if you're sitting there eating an entire box of Lorna Dunes or Little Debbie's, because I've done that on the phone meetings before while people are sharing, if that's you today, God loves you anyhow, and that's what I want to leave with you. Thanks so much. And that's a beautiful message of hope and possibility to close our meeting with this morning. Thank you so much, Lori, for sharing this magnificent story of transformation with all of us. We appreciate it greatly. We're going to close from page 164. You'll find it in a chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.